0: Okay, let's continue. So before we get to Chronicles, just quickly summarize Kings, right? Um, as I was saying, there's the ten tribes, and uh, there's the two tribes. There's kind of like a split. It's it's politically driven, right? It's politically yes. Question. Sorry, about the Chronicles of you that? Not really, but we'll cover Second King stuff in Chronicles. Yeah. Okay. Um. So, okay. So the rest of Kings, right? Just to quickly give an overview, Second Kings mostly um, is showing how the various kings, right? About fourteen total, uh, in the north. So there's the North Kingdom, the Green Party, uh, normally called Israel, sometimes called Ephraim. So sometimes you read in Scripture, um, especially in the prophets, you know, God will be addressing you, Ephraim, you did this and this and this. you be like, who's Ephraim? It's referring to the northern kingdom. And in the southern kingdom is Judah, right? And that's where Jerusalem is. That's where Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is king, right? Which is important because remember, the Davidic line continues through Solomon and through his son. And so all the southern kings, what happens in the south is kind of more relevant than the north, if I can put it like that. And even here, I just put that after the split of the kingdoms... Two hundred years after the split, the north is destroyed by the Assyrians. They come in and then they take them away to um, exile uh, in Assyria, and then the Babylonians come into Assyria and take them to Babylon, right? And then um, three hundred and forty years for the southern kingdom, right? So they lasted longer than their brothers, but then eventually they also captured. So, there was this theory I remember about the ten tribes from the north that after they were, <clears throat> after they were captured, um, they disappeared i don 't know if you heard of the the, the the lost tribes of the last ten tribes of Israel, which say that uh, the northern kingdom all the tribes there have disappeared. We only have Judah and Babylon, which is not true because in the New Testament we still still speak of the twelve tribes of Judah, and um, as we were talk, talking with the ladies there about the 12 tribes being represented in heaven. And even in the New Testament, there's people from different tribes, right, from the 10 tribes um, that are referred to. So it's completely not true. Anyways, there's, there's, there's kings that span all this time until exile. And then in 722 BC, roughly then, is the destruction of the northern kingdom. And the prophets Elijah and Elisha play a big part in this right? During that time, we come across probably the worst king named Ahab, right? Who had a wife named Jezebel. Um, Elijah and Elisha, they did a lot of miracles, and they represent the prophets. Uh, at this time, there were a whole lot of prophets writing scripture, right? And we'll see, we'll see all of this. We we'll go into it when we get, into the, when we get to the prophets. Um, the most famous miracle that they did was when they got to Mount Carmel, and that's in 1 Kings... Uh, no, sorry first kings verse 18 chapter 18 chapter 18 right um, and he challenges the priest and the priestesses of Baal uh, they build an altar for sacrifice and they say whoever sends a fire from heaven to set this on fire is a true god um, Jezebel is too smart right she realizes that they won't win and she doesn't send her priestesses uh, the priest the false Priests are are crying out for fire. They cut themselves and they, they do things which are kind of demonic, which is sad. Um, and then the prophets mock Ahab's people. When it's Elijah's turn, uh, he makes the altar wet. You know, he's that confident in the Lord. He's like, I'll even make this wet before calling fire upon it. Um, and then the fire does come down and consumes everything. And he tells the people, kill the priests, right? And they kill them all. And um, it's a whole thing that goes on there, right? So. It's a trailer for when we look at that, and we will go through that. Um, so let's go to Chronicles, right? first and second Chronicles. So how do we date this book and its events? Well, Chronicles ends after the decree of Cyrus in the year 538 or 539 BC, right? So the decree of Cyrus was that the Jews who were in exile in Babylon at the time, right? so Cyrus becomes king, and then um, he frees them, right? He frees God's people, and he says, you're allowed to go home and rebuild the temple which was flattened when they invaded. Um, So Cyrus issues this decree, and the people are now free to go home. Now, the first nine chapters of Chronicles is everyone's favorite, genealogies. (laughs) Right, it's just genealogies, nine chapters of genealogies, and uh, one of those genealogies is that of the returning exiles, right? Which is in chapter nine. So the exiles who are returning to Jerusalem, and so we're giving a list of all these people who return to Jerusalem, and that is the last recorded event, right? So that happened somewhere around here, which is why we think Chronicles was written around 400 BC, because it must have been after that. Once they were in the land, that's when it was written. So who do you think the original audience is? Probably the people who've now returned to the land, right? And you can imagine why it's being written. It's because these people, they go back home, and what do they find? Well, what had God promised? He promised to leave a heap of ruins, right? Right everything was laid flat. So they get back home and they look around. It's probably overgrown. It's just dust. It's just rubble. There's probably wild animals in the land. And even then, not many people returned to to Jerusalem from Babylon. Some actually stayed in Babylon because the Lord had actually told them to settle down and to marry and to have kids and to live life there. So for those Israelites who do go home, you can imagine you you get there and what used to be your home, what used to be your pride and glory, you know, worshipping in the temple is now gone. You know, uh, the land and life is in ruin. So you could start to feel like, where is God? You know, like I've come home, to, I've come back to this. You know, we used to be God's people. Now this is what we've been reduced to. Um, and so where King says, this is why you're in this situation. Chronicle says, God hasn't forsaken you. Right. God is a covenant keeping God. And. How Chronicles answers that question, right? Of where to from now, is through the two main themes. So there's two main themes in Chronicles, which is the Davidic line and the temple, right? Those two things answer those questions because through the Davidic line we get Christ, right? Is the promise of Christ though, and the temple is also points to Christ because you know he is um, points to the church, which points to Christ. So that's why when you read Samuel King's and Chronicles, you'll find a lot of repetition, right. Chronicles repeats a lot of Samuel and King's, but it doesn't tell us about David and Bathsheba, for example, right? Why? Because it was a negative thing, it's a bad thing, right? It's looking at the positive aspects, it's looking at the promises, at the good stuff, for example. Um, and we even even get a recounting of the senses. So the senses is something evil, something bad that had happened, right. But here we can look at it in a positive light, even that. right? And we'll, we'll discuss that when we, when we get to that chapter. So it's basically an encouragement to the people of God that he has not forsaken them and that they can have confidence in the promised Davidic line. So the book begins with all these genealogies, starting with Adam, all the way in the beginning. right? Which is the only other book that does this, which starts a genealogy from all the way in the beginning. You guys know close it's luke's gospel right so luke's gospel starts with adam all the way to christ right um so this uh, these genealogies luke and here they cover thousands of years and why is this important right well why do people have things like family trees To to know where you come from Right to give you kind of a sense of an identity, right um, a heritage, right give you a heritage, they give you a history, they give you a purpose in a way, right It says you come from somewhere. it's not just you and your moment right you there's something bigger, you're part of something bigger, there's a bigger picture, right you did not just appear as that it's like no, you can look back and see all these people um And so imagine this audience being written to realizing that. It's like, wait a minute, I'm a part of something huge, right? Um, It's something bigger than this current situation, something bigger than the ruins around me. Uh, All these names, all these people, God has been working for thousands of years from the very first man, right? Uh, All the way up to the tribes of Israel. And Chronicle says, he's still working. He's going to work through the Davidic line, right? He's still going to work through the temple. And... Uh, and, like we we 've discussed before, when we see this, we should also see our lineage in the faith. right These are also our brothers and sisters in Christ from times before. So the genealogy has massive significance right it 's not just there for the sake of it. Um, has there ever been a pointless family tree? Not really. So we get to chapter ten and we get back to the life of David, and David takes up a third of chronicles so A lot of ink is spent on David's life. So again, you will read about David being made king, David's mighty men, uh, David's victories over all the nations, and his worship. And then there's the Ark of the Covenant. So remember what the Ark of the Covenant represented? It signified the Mosaic Covenant and was the symbol and location of God's presence on the earth. right? But it was neglected during Saul's reign. So when Saul was king, it was almost like an afterthought. But David is a man of God, right? And he's concerned for the ark and how it's handled and how it's taken care of. And his concern for it is a sign of his commitment and it shows his love for the things of God, right? He loves God, therefore, he loves the, the ark of the covenant because of what it represents and stands for. And David, acting out of this concern for the ark, leads directly to the establish, establishment of God's covenant with him in chapter 17. So if you go to First Chronicles 17. So this is the Davidic covenant, which we also read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord says, you can't build me a house, but I will build your house, a dynasty, right? And David responds in verse 17, uh, in verse 16, actually. He says, "Then, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come, and have shown, me the, have shown me future generations, O Lord God. So, what's interesting about that is a possible interpretation of verse 17 is you know where it says, You have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come, and have shown me future generations. In the Hebrew, you can interpret it as you have seen me according to the Adam who is to come, right? And who is the Adam to come? It's Christ, right? So if you were to interpret it that way, it would make sense because even Paul speaks of the first Adam and the second Adam who is Christ. And remember, they believe the gospel, right? They believe there would be a Messiah to come, Uh, another Adam coming, right? A serpent crusher. So David believed that. So um, David is saying, how could you be so good and kind to me? It is because you have seen me through the Adam who is to come, right? Which is right. Uh, Why doesn't God send David to hell? I mean, he died before Christ came, right? Before Christ came into the world. But we all know God is not bound by time. In David's time, he looked forward to the cross, right? For us, God looks back to the cross, right? So that's a possible interpretation, which... um, I like verse eight, sorry, chapter 18. David fights and conquers over his enemies. When we read Joshua, uh, we read Joshua would defeat his enemies. And what was the purpose of that? Well, we understood it as a fulfillment of God's promises that he will give the nations into Israel's hands. Right. And that he would also judge the nations through Israel. And Joshua was a type or a picture of Christ as a divine warrior who defeats all his enemies. But the chronicler here depicts David defeating his enemies for the purpose of getting plunder, for getting materials to build a temple. Right? So you can see how uh, before we looked at warfare as a means of um, spiritual warfare. right? Um, but now we see warfare for the purpose of building up the temple, warfare for building up the church. If you go to chapter 21... So chapter 21 um, details the census, right? So remember, census is a numbering, it's taking stock of all the people in the land. And look at verse 1. It says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Right? So Satan is inciting David to take the census. What did we read in 2 Samuel 24? I don't know if you guys remember. Who who incited David, who moved David to do the census? And number the people. It was God, right? The text there says God incited David to number the people. Um, in Samuel, it says it's the Lord. Here it says it's Satan, right? Is there discrepancy? It's no, because remember, there's secondary causes. God is using the devil. He's using Satan as a means to achieve his own purposes, right? And this is a very negative account. It's a negative account in Chronicles, which is supposed to be positive, right? So what is going on? Well, David did something wrong. Um, Why is it wrong? By the way, do you guys know why the census is wrong? Sorry. Oh, okay. Do you guys know why the census was wrong? Is that a no? Okay. Um, Okay, you don't have to turn there, but in Exodus 30 verse 12, right? Exodus 30 verse 12, God told Moses, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he's counted, then no plague will come on them when you number them. right? So the reason why it was wrong is because uh, in those times, a man only had the right to count or number something which belonged to him. right? So Israel did not belong to David. Israel belonged to God. Right? Anytime there was a census, it's because God told the person to do the census. In Exodus, he told Moses to number the people, right and he said, "You know when you take a sense of census, this is what must happen, otherwise, a plague will come upon you and we'll see that we see that uh, in this chapter, uh, because David has done this, because he's just gone and numbered the people as if he owns them, God brings upon him oh, upon the land plagues right basically that's, that's what's going on there. Um, so it was up to God to command the census. Right. So even if he did count the people, it should have been at God's command. Um, And this is why God was angry with Israel. And it's also why David, after doing the census, he was, it says he was conscious stricken. Right. It was, it went against his conscience because he knew he did something wrong after he counted Israel. (coughs) So he knows that he does something wrong. And then afterwards he begs God to take away the guilt of his sin. Uh, But God is angry and he judges. Right. He sends an angel to kill people. And what is it that causes the angel to stop? What does David do? He buys things. He buys two things. What do you guys see that he buys there? Yes, he buys a field. And he buys oxen, right? So he buys oxen and he buys a field. So he buys a threshing floor, right? And he buys oxen where he's going to sacrifice going to put to death that oxen and so that piece of land that is bought is going to be where the temple is built right so that's the positive part of this account is that the piece of land ultimately points us to the temple right the sacrifice of the oxen is the violence that ends the violence right it's the violence that ends god's judgment so that is what the cross is Right. That is what happened with Christ. It's the act of violence that ends all violence. Right? The death of Christ stops the violence that we deserve. The people deserve the wrath, that the, the, the death that God was bringing upon them until um, um, David made the sacrifice. Right, um, And the language that's used is powerful because the Lord tells the angel to put his sword back in his sheath once the sacrifice has been made. So it's a beautiful picture of what Christ has accomplished for us, right? We get to chapter 22. Chapter 22, we are told that David is not going to be allowed to build a temple because he shed blood. He was a man of war. Solomon is going to build it, but David gets everything ready, right? He gets all the materials ready, all the gold, all the silver, cedar wood, precious stones. It's put together for Solomon to build. And then the next few chapters, you see David organizing for the temple. So he's organizing the priests, he's organizing the choirs, he's organizing the worship leaders. Um, he's, he's, he's doing everything, uh, he's getting everything for temple worship ready, right? He's getting all of that set in place. And that is what the temple is for, right? It's for worship. That is the focus of the temple. So that's from chapters 23 to 28. And finally, in chapter 29 is when we transition to Solomon as king, Right? And that's when it's finally recorded in, in Chronicles. And you'll notice that all the accounts of fighting over who's going to be king is left out. right? Like none of that is there. Um, remember there was Adonijah who wanted to be king and he was put to death. And this king was killed and that king was killed and Joab was killed. Uh, there was a whole lot of bloodshed going, going on. Right? A whole lot of violence. But it's left out because the focus here is on the Davidic line right? Those are the specific people we focus on. And um, in Chronicles, in First Chronicles, the northern kingdom is just forgotten. It's like there's no mention of it at all. Uh, we're not told about the kings of the northern kingdom. We're only told about the kings of the southern kingdom, right? That's the orange part, uh, because that is where the Davidic line is going to come from, right? That is the focus. So let's turn to Second Chronicles. The first six chapters in 2 Chronicles is about Solomon. Solomon building the temple and furnishing it and dedicating it. Right, We already looked at, at that part. And then if you go to chapter 7. Chapter 7 verse 14. says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Have you guys heard that verse before? Right. Uh, it's one that's been misused a lot. I don't know if you've heard it in your circles. How do people use it? How do most people apply it? Well, I've seen most people apply it to their countries. Right they apply to the countries a lot of a lot of people continue to do so right uh, because it speaks of people turning from sin, and the Lord will hear and forgive the sin and heal their land, right so probably farmers also use this um, but uh so a lot of like predominantly Christian countries right there's no such thing as a Christian country, but you know what I mean right. Um, they will use us and say, no, we need to turn back to God because he has promised us in Second Chronicles 14. Um, but that's not the case, right? This is, this is not talking about the land. The application for this verse is not the country, it's God's people, right? And so today this p- applies to the church. At the time of kings and the reign of Solomon, the Israelites were the people of God. It was his chosen nation, right? It was a country, basically, a theocracy, right, run by God. So if you pray and you fast in repentance, then I will bless this land, the Lord says, but it's the land of Israel, right? It's not just any land, like no country can just claim to that, um, to that scripture. But now in the new covenant, it's not like that, right? It's not that we shouldn't pray for uh, material blessing uh, or rain or anything like that, but the bigger goal should be for the church's holiness, Right? We repent and turn from our wickedness to be more holy, to be more like Christ, right? The Lord may choose to bless the country or he may not. It's up to him. Um, but there's always been a link, I think, between uh, the health of a nation and the health of a church, right? The church being like the Christians in the, in the land. <clears throat> so obviously this also depends on the size, right? The size of, say, like Christians in the land. Um, but the more Christians there are in, say, a community, the better it is for that community, right? The same goes for the district or the city, you know, or a whole country. You know, if half the population is Christian, then it's going to go well for that country. Um, so, so, so what are they called? sociologists? Sociologists, right? They talk about what's called the tipping point. So the tipping point is when a nation has roughly like 5%, right, of people in the population who hold to a view, right, to hold to a view or belief, as soon as they reach 5%, they have a voice, they have an influence, right, Um, it makes noise in the public space, and people take notice, Um, and you see it with movements today, right, so what is, do you know what the percentage is of um, homosexuals, of gay and lesbian people in the United States, Take a guess. Ninety percent. <laughs> okay. Savela says ninety percent. Forty. Okay. Nineteen or twenty. Okay. Five percent. Okay. Should I give a prize for this? Okay. Well, none of you are getting it. It's actually one point eight percent. One point eight percent. Right? Which is crazy. And you know what the percentage of transgenders is? Now you all are thinking one point something. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 0.5. So 0.3% of transgenders, right? And yet, how much influence, how much of a voice, how much of a say? I, I don't think Sabella was joking when he said 90%, because that's what it feels like, right? <laughs> Um, And I think, so the the, the tipping point was in our traditional age, but we also live in the age of social media, right? Um, And so that voice is just amplified. Now it's just like 10 times bigger than it was. It reaches so many people that you would think 90% of the population must be gay. You know, like, where are all the straight people? I'm single. Um, So, it's not the case, guys. There's a lot of straight people, okay? That's what the stats say. Um, so it's, it's, that's, it's also a kind of a disconnect, right? Between like reality and what, what you hear or what is perceived. Um, but it's not unique to the United States. It's, it's what happens even with, think of election time, right? Even in South Africa, I think with the past two elections, you know, you would think you go on social media and you're like, okay, the the ANC is definitely not going to be in power because people are saying... This must change. We're not going to vote for this person, this person, this party. EFF is going to be in power, and then the results come out, and it's the same as before. And everyone's like, okay, humble pie, right? All of those activists are now quiet. Um, Look at what happened with Donald Trump when he was elected, right? Everyone was just shocked. You know, it's like what's happening on the ground. um, It's just there's there's this disconnect. But the problem is, these things do have an influence. They do have an effect, right? Uh, People hear what goes on with social media, on social media, and it has an effect. It shapes the minds of the men and women, and especially, sadly, young children, right, to follow godlessness um, and to hate the things of God. So everywhere you look online, on the TV, on your laptop, on your phone, you're just bombarded with worldly propaganda, worldliness, right, from CNN to Fox to enca to sabc wherever you look right even in your blogs that you read and your favorite youtubers vlogs right same things you just hear the same messages same talk same kind of language and it shapes the mind you, you cannot it's a spirit of the age that's how scripture describes it and it's very hard to escape you know even as believers we can find ourselves being drawn into that you start using that language like oh yes social justice but you know um justice is only justice if it's defined publicly you know um and so you you see, yes it does to what about yes Yeah, and it it reminds reminds me of what what Scripture says, you know, um, woe to people who call evil good and good evil, which is what happened today, right? Even I think Lelo mentioned that today it's a virtue to be angry, to be uh, upset, to be a victim. Um, being offended is currency, right? Uh, being angry and just like ranting and all that stuff on social media. Um, it's seen as good to mock and humiliate and put down other people, right? Um, anyone who disagrees with you, cancel them. Cancel culture. It's so weird. Everyone speaks, about, speaks out against cancel culture, and those same people do it, you know? Um, everyone's happy to cancel. They just don't want to be canceled. Um, but the angrier you are on social media, the better, right? The less gracious you are, the less kind you are, you gain more popularity and people follow you. That's, that's actually what's happening, which is sad. Um, but the biblical mandate, right, for us as believers is to be slow to speak and to be gracious and uh, to love our neighbors, right, um, and to build one another up and encourage one another. So social media is a means for a lot of the, the wrong that's going on in the world, but it's a means that's available to us, right, to do what's right, to... Uh, bring light where there's darkness, to be the salt, you know, to be the salt in a culture that is decaying, right? Because what does salt do? Salt preserves. And we're supposed to preserve what is good in the culture and be, you know, the role model, showing people the way of Christ. Um, so we as a church, we have the same means, right? We can be spreading the gospel online even. Um, and so we should pray and ask the Lord to grow the church in number, so that we have a tipping point, right? We have a bigger say in the culture. So that fits in with the theme of Chronicles, actually, right? Because the instruction is build a temple, rebuild a temple, right? Bring it up. In the same way today, let's build a church, right? We call to make disciples. And yes, you have a question? yeah yeah numbers numbers are good right numbers are good um mustn't fall into that spiritual you know the smaller we are the more spiritual we are because you know the world against us we're the minority the remnant <laughs> no we should be growing the church that's why we're making disciples you know um and the call and the command to make disciples is not uh to pastors and elders um it's not to the most eloquent the most confident it's not to extroverts so don't tell me you're an introvert you're not able to make disciples to all believers right if you're part of the church then your mandate is to go out and to make disciples just as much as the holiest person in church is right um okay just getting back to it getting back to chronicles remember we're looking at the davidic line and the temple and i didn't mention the theme of the temple runs throughout scripture first in the garden of eden um, and so, whenever you're reading the Old Testament, whenever you're seeing all the violence, all the wars, and all the fighting, how does that apply to us? Spiritual warfare, right? We've spoken about that before. We are to be killing Canaanites, right? It has encouraging applications about spiritual warfare uh, and, and Christ and how He conquers our enemies, right? And how Christ is a divine warrior. Our enemies are not primar- primarily the Muslims, the Jehovah's Witness. The people online, the YouTubers who are slandering Christians, our main enemies are sin, self, and Satan, right? So that's a battle of its own, but that's the main primary battle, Um, but we also fight all those other things, okay? Um, And so in the same way, right, when we read that about spiritual warfare, in the same way, when you read about the temple in the Old Testament, and you see all this talk in Chronicles, because we won't get to go through it, but just keep this in mind, when you read all this talk about the temple in Chronicles, and other passages of Scripture, it has encouraging applications for us, right? Um, It has incredible meaning and value for you and I, because the temple is ultimately realized in the church, right? um and what did jesus say to the jews he said destroy this temple and in three days i will raise it up right and they were confused because they were standing in the temple the actual temple when he said that but he wasn't referring to that what was he referring to he's talking about his body right he's talking about the body of christ and his physical body because um, that's what the gospel writer goes on to say right that he was talking about his body and we are the body of christ and theologians call it the mystical union, right? The moment you get converted, the moment you believe in Christ, uh, the moment Christ saves you and makes you his own and united with him in faith, uh, there's a mystical union, right? That happens. Not mystical as in, you know, magic and dust. Mystical as in we don't quite understand it. You know, it's one of the mysteries of God. How are we united to Christ? How are we together, one with him, um, we don't know how, but we are, right? And that's the truth of Scripture. Um, and it is, such, it is in such a way that we are also called the body of Christ. We are also a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so when you read Chronicles, uh, keep those three things in mind, right? Number one, focus on the Davidic line. From this king will come, from King David will come the ultimate king. And look for that in the text, right? Read and reread it. Scrutinize it until you see it, right? You will see how it points to Christ. And how you can apply it to your own life as you walk with the Lord is uh, whenever you go through difficulties, um, dark and hopeless times when things are tough, uh, when you see no hope, when it seems like this is just not ending, or when you're drowning in your sin, what do you do? Look to Christ. right? Have confidence in the Davidic line. Have confidence that he will not fail. God will not fail. right? God has made promises to you. He made promises to Israel. And when it seemed like the Davidic line would disappear because there were just only two tribes in the, in the, in the south and everyone else was against them and they were taken into um, exile and the temple was laid to, to dust. When it seemed like all was, was lost, God still kept his promises and we still got our uh, true king, right? And so he will keep his promises to you. And the second thing to keep in mind is, like I said, build a church, right? build a temple, be involved, get in there, help build up the body, you make up the part of the body of Christ, right? Which part of the body you make up, we're not sure, but there is no such thing as an insignificant part of the body, right? Uh, Who of you has ever broken a thumb? If you've broken a thumb, how useful is your hand when you break your thumb? Oh, I thought you saw. No, No one has broken their thumb. Wow. well if you've broken your thumb you'll realize that your hand is pretty useless without the thumb right or if you've broken your toe you basically cannot walk right small little pieces of the body but look how much effect it has on it right or even now sitting up someone comes with a knife and says give up a part of your body which one will you be okay yeah take this because you know i don't use it nobody says that right um the 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 smallest parts of your body are the most important right the ear the ear canal like without that you lose balance you'll just walk around falling stumbling over like your drunk uncle in december and and all of this to say that there is no such thing as an insignificant part of the body right every single part of it is vital when it's not there when it's hurt when it's broken you feel it right um so yeah be involved be making disciples um because you are part of the body, part of the church. So be working. Yes, Litawa. So the the whole body analogy does it like refer to different types of people in the church or different churches. what does it mean? Because I think people just throw it out the ADL and it's so have a concrete Um I think on one level, yeah. It does say that because like every every part of I think I think it definitely does, because but it, I wouldn't take it as far as to say, okay, you are the hand or you are the eye or whatever. But it does say that within the body there are people who do different things, right? Um, because even when, he, when you come to the topic of gifts, right, uh, people are gifted differently by God. You know, when he speaks of things in Corinthians, speaking of the okay, different various passages in the New Testament, you know, he has given the evangelist he's given this and this and this and this, those gifts um always given people who are you know there to exhort one another and da-da. so yeah definitely it's not it's not just a vague nice analogy it's it's a, it's an analogy but it's a brilliant one i think it's very really, yeah just to add so Representing the head, is probably the most important part of it is the most important part of the body. So, you know, Christ is. So yeah, everything that's I've ever said. Okay. Okay, because we run out of time quickly. Um, so, question for you guys: Why is the church better than the temple? The temple in the Old Testament. Two marks. Because I think it's a very simple answer. Well, how does the coming of Christ make the church infinitely better than the temple? He's with the people. As well, other hands. The, yes, it's our it uh, like the whole community aspect of Blackbird. Since he see it at the right hand fall, like we have almost had like their communion, like he sort of like that whole king, priest, and prophet role in terms of just like being all high priest and stuff like that. So, yeah. percent yeah you all get two marks um, Right, right so the temple had the holiest of holies and there was a curtain and with christ the curtain is torn in two right do you want to say something I mean, like we can come in any kind of, condition of mm. moment, like we have to divine mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. for you to get into the world. <clears throat> yeah in christ you can come yeah as you are, there's neither Jew, Gentile, there's no position, basically, right, yeah, unlike the temple, right, the temple, no one had access, only the high priest, and he'd go in once a year, and even then, he had to go in with fear and trembling, and sometimes the high priest would actually be struck down, and then had to drag the guy up with the rope, right, Um, was that hectic, um, (laughs) Yes. So so yeah. And he had a rope here, as you said, attached to his foot. Mm. So that if God found, found any sin in him, he mm. would get stricken down yeah. inside the Holy of Holies. 100%. Yeah. And they would test whether he's still alive. Yeah, by pulling it. <laughs> yeah, they, they would. They would actually do that. They would do that. So it is, yeah, you're right, significant because um, it was a scary thing. Right? It wasn't just like a, a small thing. Um, but, like Litau said, now in Christ, you know, a way has been opened up. That's what you guys said. Um, there are no more holy places, right? In Judaism, in the Old Testament, um, there was the holy place, the temple. It was called the holiest of holies, right? God's special place. But in the New Covenant, there's no more holy places. Um, you don't have to go to Jerusalem today to be in the presence of God, right? Um, there are a lot of Christians who uh, I've, like, I know who've been there to Jerusalem if you speak to them they're like, oh, you know, you go, they just feel the presence of God. <laughs> and you know, they just they could just sense the Lord there. And to say to say God is more present in a location, um, and it's it's wrong. It's not true. Solomon said, Who can build a building that can continue? Right. Uh, Even Stephen in the book of Acts says, The heavens are your throne and the earth is your footstool. The earth is just a footstool. And you think we can contain God in a room in that building over there. Um, Our church building, there's nothing really special. There's nothing special about it. It's just nice to look at in the sunshine at a certain time. But, you know, um, at the end of the day, it's just a tool. You know, it's just a tool. It's just a place that's convenient to meet in. only when God's people gather is it a holy gathering, but that's because it's the gathering of God's people, right? So what's the difference between Old Testament and New Testament believers? So because they had the the Holy Spirit, because they believed, you know, you can't believe without the Holy Spirit, um, um, they had the Holy Spirit, but they did not have the same access that you and I have today, right? Um, but there's a radical shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament, Right? So much so that John can even say, as yet the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. You know, that's how radical it was. So even though they did have the Holy Spirit because they believed, they didn't have the access that we enjoy today. You can be anywhere and be in the presence of God. You can, you can be in your car, in your room and pray, right? You can pray anyway. Imagine if you had to, imagine you're about to write your exam and you had to go to the temple, you know? Cause I know you guys be saying your prayers. Right there, five minutes before you start. Imagine if they were, you still had to run to the temple and do that and then come write your exam. No, it's anywhere, right? Um, you can approach the throne of God with boldness, right? That's what the, the writer of Hebrews says um, to obtain mercy and find grace for help in time of need, which is amazing. I think we take that for granted. Right? I definitely do. Um, um, and we shouldn't, you know, uh, it's, it's an amazing privilege that we have as believers to have full access to god right christ dies and the moment that he dies the temple curtain is torn in two and that system is null and void Um, it's finished how do you get to the father it's through faith in the son christ is everything christ is the temple christ is the david christ is the means of transition from the old to the new right all the promises are yes and amen in christ so the rest of chronicles from chapter 10 till the end is all the kings, right? The Davidic line. Um, we won't go into that. Um, we will go to the very last chapter of Second Chronicles uh, 36. If you go there, verse 23. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, sorry, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build a, him a house at Jerusalem which is in Judah, whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So that's Cyrus, right? That's Cyrus, and he lets all the Israelites go, go home, back to their land, so that they can build a temple. And so they start building the temple, um, but then they stop. They start building, then they stop, and then they leave it, and the Lord has to send the prophets, right? The prophets have to come in and tell them, you need to start building again. Uh, the people eventually do it, and then they complete it, and we will. That's what we will begin looking at in the coming few weeks. So, any questions? Yes, I will. Um, so which I think uh, it was I uh, said. Uh, when we spoke about, I don't know, asked about uh, why you went to the and why. That's Percy.